You're listening to WCAT Radio, your home for authentic Catholic programming. Hello and welcome to another edition of St. Paul's Letters to America. This is the program that asks, hey, what if St. Paul, St. Paul, you know, the guy who wrote all those letters in the New Testament, the most prolific writer in the New Testament, what if St. Paul were alive today here in America? Looking at what is going on around us, what message would he give us? If he was going to write a letter to us in America today, what would he be telling us? Well, here on this program, we think you can get, we think we can give you exactly such a letter. Hello and welcome again to the program. My name is Ray Gerard and I am your program host for this program, which tries to give you just such a letter. And why do we do that? We do that because we know that St. Paul's letters are timeless. What he wrote 2,000 years ago is the same as what he would write today. The message is the same. The message does not change because truth does not change. And St. Paul wrote truth. So today, what are we going to look at? Well, like so many other recent programs, we're going to be looking at this coronavirus pandemic uh, and this time from a little bit of a different angle. We pick different angles in which the pandemic is affecting our society and compare that to these truths that uh, St. Paul gave us. Are we reacting to the pandemic in different ways that are in keeping with the truths of, of following Christ in the ways that we should? Are we reacting in ways that perhaps are not consistent with that? And today, what we're going to look at is the subject of marriage and divorce. Yes, that subject is also affected by the pandemic. There are so many things in our society that are being affected by the pandemic, and that is also one of them. So what do we have from St. Paul for you today? We have this as his letter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who encourages us in every affliction, so that we may be able to encourage those who are in any affliction with the encouragement with which we ourselves are encouraged by God. For as Christ's sufferings overflow to us, so through Christ does our encouragement also overflow. We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that came to us in the province of Asia. We were utterly weighed down beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. He rescued us from such great danger, and he will continue to rescue us. But the time of my departure is at hand. I have competed well. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now, if you're uh, any kind of a, a Bible scholar or reader of the Bible, you may very well recognize that these two, that this letter is a combination of parts of two different letters from St. Paul, but we put them together for a reason that we'll now explain. But first off, he talks about affliction and encouragement. Affliction is not something that um, is to be avoided at all costs. It will come. You cannot live this life of ours without having afflictions come your way. But the important thing is to be encouraged. And for Paul, 
that encouragement comes from Christ. And when we suffer afflictions, when we suffer troubles, stresses, turmoils, downturns in our life, the way Paul looks at it, the way he would tell us to look at it today, is that we can use those afflictions as sources of encouragement for others. Because to the extent we suffer, we draw on Christ who suffered for us, who suffered the same things that we suffer. He encountered so many things that we encounter. He encountered ridicule. Uh, He encountered rejection. He encountered so many things that we encounter. And yet, he never wavered. He stood up under all of it. And he still loved, loved even his abusers and oppressors. He loved everyone. And because we suffer afflictions, we can draw on Christ for some of that same strength that he drew on, some of that strength that he possessed. And then if we draw on Christ for that, we can pass that on to other people. That's what it's always all about, to follow in Christ's footsteps. Paul even talks here about in this letter that we that we've quoted even talks here about despairing of life. He was ready to give up. He was at the lowest depths. And then he said he was rescued from such danger by God. So the threat seems like he's talking about an actual uh, threat to his physical life and that even though he was despairing of life, even though he was ready to give up, He still put his trust in God. In any event, um, it's important to know that for us here today, who, you know, for those among us who might be considering suicide, who might be despairing of life, who might be suffering from certain afflictions that make them even want to give up on life, we can follow Paul's example, draw strength and encouragement from Christ, come through it, and then perhaps encourage others who are having the same types of thoughts who might also be considering suicide. If we draw on strength from Christ, we can do all of that. And then what's the third thing that's noteworthy in this? Well, this is the part that comes from a separate letter where he talks about the fact that I have competed well, I have finished the race. And that's important because despite all his afflictions, he he stood up, he bore up under all of them. And at the end of the day, before his death, he took comfort in the fact that he, is, that he had competed well. He finished the race. He did not quit. And his, his, the final line he gives us here, I have kept the faith. That's what he means when he says, I have competed well. I have kept the faith. There's only one thing we really need to do that's important in this life. Only one. We get so concerned day in and day out with so many other things, and often enough we forget the one thing that is the only thing we really need to be concerned about. That's keeping the faith, following Christ, never losing faith in Christ. That's it. So this is the message from St. Paul. This is what he would tell us here in America today. If you have troubles, use them, draw strength from Christ And then encourage others who might be having the same troubles. And never despair. As low as you may go, never quit. So that at the end of the day, you too can say, I have kept.
the faith in Christ. That's how you can weather everything and make it to the finish line. That's how you can avoid quitting if you keep the faith so that you can draw on strength from Christ. It's all, when you think about it, relatively simple. But here in America, it seems that we tend to forget that. There's a um, an article that came out, not an American periodical, actually, and it was in a British one. It was the Daily Mail. And they were commenting on some statistics that were put together uh, by an organization called Legal Templates. Legal Templates is a uh, an online firm that provides legal documents. They sell legal documents. And one of the legal documents they sell are separation agreements for married people who want to get divorced. And uh, what they noted was that um, legal separations, even just 15 to 20 days after the outbreak of the pandemic in early April, uh, actually uh, April 13th of this year, they found that there was a peak in the purchases of these documents for legal separations. On April 13th, just a few weeks after this, the pandemic and the, the lockdown had, had started. And, okay, so there's a peak in the orders for their legal separation agreements. So what? Well, the so what is not just a so what because this peak was, in fact, markedly higher than what it had been before that. As a matter of fact, they saw a 34% increase in these uh, divorce agreements, in the request for these divorce agreements, 34%. In other words, two to three weeks into this pandemic, there is a, thir- there is a, a jump by a third of people looking for divorces just after a few weeks of the shutdown. That's not a small statistical amount. Whenever you get something that jumps by as much as 34%, that's a significant change. Um, they apparently uh, found out from the people that were purchasing these things, um, and I guess one of the things that they asked is, you know, one of the online questions they ask is, what about irreparable, uh, irreconcilable or irreparable damage to your relationship? And 31%, and apparently they also asked why, 31% of those responding said that the quarantine, the quarantine, the lockdown, caused irreparable damage. Again, this is only, you know, after a few weeks into this pandemic. How brittle, how fragile are these marital relationships? And if they are that brittle and that fragile, do they not have strength that they can draw on? Was there nothing, no reservoir? Was, was there nothing that they could fall back on to keep their marriage from breaking up? Um, let's see. And this was especially true for newlyweds. For people who had been married five months or less, they found that in 2019, 11% of the people that had been married five, percent or five months or less were looking for separation agreements. That's a huge enough number as it is. You're only married half a year and you're already looking for a separation. That was 11%. Well, as large as that number is, it doesn't compare with what happened after the pandemic began. Now that 11% jumped to 20%, a fifth 
a fifth of the people wanted out after less than five months of marriage. And this, again, very significant change. This number almost doubled in the span of a year. Why? Because of the pandemic. Again, because of this affliction which the pandemic brought. Perhaps the loss of a job. Uh, perhaps, you know, a loss of a job, there's stress, a little anxiety about the future. That's enough to break up a marriage, even after only five months. No reservoir, fragile, brittle, no strength, nothing to encourage these people to continue on. Well, with that as a backdrop, the next question is, all right, well, if St. Paul would tell these people, hey, draw your strength from Christ, would that make any difference? Well, there's a professor at the University of Connecticut who might be able to shed some light for us on that question. He um, apparently got very involved with studying the difference in the divorce rate between people who were religious and people who were not religious. And he studied this uh, for over a nine-year period. He had a very protracted uh, blog series about it, wrote a book about it. And then in uh, 2015, he took the results of three separate polls, the General Social Survey, the GSS. He took those results for the years 2010, 2012, and 2014, started to look at some statistics. And he also compared these statistics to prior years going back as far as 1972. And what he found was that in these last three polls from 2012 to 2010, excuse me, 2014, he found that 45% of people had been divorced. In other words, people that had ever been married, of people who had ever been married, had they also ever been divorced? 45%, according to this survey, had to answer yes. 45%. Now, it's often told, uh, anecdotally, this is tossed around that, you know, people, well, for example, people who are getting married, they say, well, you know, if, if you're in a group of, of couples that are about to be married, uh, you know, and maybe some marriage preparation class, and we're going to actually talk about marriage preparation classes a little later. But if you're in a marriage preparation class or in some type of group of people who are about to be married, that it's often said, hey, you know, those people are often told, hey, you know, look to those people on your right and to your left because one of them is going to get divorced. Half of all people who get married get divorced. Half of, you know, And that's often said, but are there statistics to back it up? Well, this, this professor from the University of Connecticut, his name is Wright, Professor Wright, Professor Bradley Wright. He found the number, in looking through the numbers, he found, yeah, that's true. It's sad because it wasn't always that way. Um, comparing the numbers to 1972, he found a big difference. Um, just in over you know, 50, a 53-year span, the number had basically doubled. Whereas in 1972, when people were asked, people who had ever been married, had you ever been divorced? 24% of the people said yes. 24. That means 75, 76% of the people could answer no. Just 53 years later, from 1972 to 2015, um, 
And now all of a sudden you've got 45%. 45%. From 24 to 45 in just a few decades. That's a huge, huge number. So then Professor Wright looked a little bit deeper into the numbers. And what he found was this, that um, the highest ranking grouping, he looked at groupings of people according to faiths. And um, this grouping, there was a a survey grouping that he borrowed from some other source. But anyways, the grouping was uh, evangelicals, uh, mainline Protestants, black Protestants, Catholics, Jewish, other faiths, and people who prescribe, who ascribe to having no religion at all. And uh, what he found was that the highest ranking uh, you know, group of people who uh, had ever been divorced were black Protestants. They came in at 57%. But the second highest were people who, pres- who ascribed to no religion at all. And they were about around 52%. Catholics were around 37%. Uh, other groups in between. So there's a significant difference from that, you know, from the, uh, for example, from atheists and agnostics to Catholics to the tune of about 15%, which is a significant statistical amount. Uh, but then what he also found, he, do- he dove a little deeper, and that he found, um, he traced these numbers again over this period from 1972 to 2015. And what he, what he did is he looked at People in all of these different faiths, um, how many of them attended church regularly? And he grouped them on this basis. People who would attend church maybe, you know, once or twice a year. People who uh, attended church service on average perhaps once a month. And people who attended every week. And what he also found was a big difference in the numbers. And it was, again, from the high to the low. Is about a 15% gap. In 1972, the low was around 70, 17%. The high was 30. Uh, so people who attended and, and went along the lines you would expect. The people who attended church more regularly got divorced less frequently. All, all th- throughout all those years, um, even though the numbers changed consistently, the lowest um, group of people who got divorced were people who attended church weekly. In the middle were people who attended church monthly. And at the high end were people who attended church only once or twice a year. And this was consistent throughout all 50 years of this study. And from, as I said, 1972, the gap from the lowest to the high was from 17 to 30 percent. And then in 2015, from the low to the high was 37 to 52 percent. So in each... You know, it, it's 13 to 15 percent higher all the time, all the time. So you can look at these statistics and think, okay, you, know, you can draw the conclusion that um, attending church, being religious, helps you um, avoid divorce, helps you stay together, helps you maintain a commitment. Is it, in fact, because these people – have some encouragement that comes from God, that if they have some affliction, some trouble, some turmoil and stress in their life, that they have something to fall back on, something to draw strength from. Is it really that simple? Uh, For some years, 
me and my wife uh, up in Chicago. I'll give you a little uh, personal kind of a story. So for about 15 years, when we were living up in the Chicago area, we um, led what were called uh, pre-Cana classes. And so for an entire day, we would take groups of couples who were about to get married and um, do a little marriage preparation class along lines and according to a, a curriculum for the day's program that had been established by the archdiocese. And uh, we would help them prepare for marriage, help them ask some questions and think about some issues that perhaps they hadn't discussed previously to try and get them ready for things they might face during their marriage. And um, towards the end of the day, we always read a certain story. And uh, the story, the story actually was this. We told them there was a story told of a lover and his beloved. He seemed to have some of the same troubles that many couples have. He would try to initiate a relationship, but too often was rebuffed. Again and again, he would received a no or later or not today. Sometimes others would speak for him, saying what a compassionate, just, and good person he was. These friends would implore the beloved, but often to no avail. He was a lover who would not be put off, though. Finally, a yes was given. Tentative, but a yes nonetheless. And the rest is history. The lover loved his beloved beyond all telling. His love held no grudges. It could forgive all transgressions and was the source of life for his beloved. This story is actually well known and has been told and retold in the books of the Bible. The names of the liaisons between the lover and his beloved are familiar and now legendary. Moses, Isaiah, Ruth, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Mary, Elizabeth, Paul, John, and so many others throughout the ages. The lover in this story is our Lord, and we, his beloved. He has pursued us throughout the ages with the sole intent of giving us his love. He asks that we be his people and he our God. We may say no, today or later, and really mean never, but he will ask again, and he will not give up. I like to a father standing alone on a hillside, searching for his wayward son, does our God seek us. And when we turn to him, when we say yes, his arms envelop us, and the words rise, calling forth a great celebration. He is a generous lover, this God of ours, who wants only to love us. He still pursues us, if we have ever felt the presence of God, the presence of God in our life, it is simply a story of how the lover still beckons to us, his beloved. He calls to us in our frailty and our strength. He reveals himself to us in the midst of nature and in the quiet of a church. He is present in the faces of those whom we love and in the solitude of a car on an open road. The Christian people call marriage a sacrament because it echoes the love God has for his spouse, his people. Marriage is a sacrament. It's a sign of the love of God, of the love of God. And married people are a sign of unconditional love for each other. They embody the unconditional love God has.
for us. And that is the truth, is it not? I mean, marriage is a sacrament. It is a passing on of God loves us, and then we pass that love on to other people. Uh, St. Pope John Paul II uh, gave a series of talks which have now been collected and uh, put into a book called The Theology of the Body. And he would talk about this, that the love of a husband and a wife and a child the natural family here on earth mirrors the love, the three-part love of the Trinity in heaven, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, mother, father, and child. It's a mirror. It's a reflection. It makes us in the image of God. God is love, just St. John tells us. God is love. And if we are made in the image of God, then our image, our spiritual image, are the image of who we are in the reality we cannot see is love. We are born to love. That's how we achieve our purpose. That's what St. Paul talks about when he says, when you have afflictions, draw encouragement and then pass on the encouragement. We're meant to love others. See, this all comes together. It all fits together. We, we say all the time in this program, St. Paul expresses truths. And here we have one concept from this writing of St. Paul, which marries up, pardon that pun, with uh, the writings of Saint, another saint uh, with, uh, whose name includes the name Paul, St. John Paul II, you know, and, and his thanks, uh, thoughts on the theology of the body. You know, and it, and it and it marries up too with, you know, what we're told in the book of Genesis that we're made in the image of God. It all fits together. Why? Because it's true. It fits together because it is the true reality. It's the truth of reality. It's who we are. So, in any event, um, this is what we're talking about when we say marriage is a covenant. Now, the Old Testament has running throughout the whole book, the whole, you know, whole, all the books of the Old Testament, this idea that God made a covenant with his people. We think marriage is a covenant. It's a pact. Well, what's the difference between – people think a covenant just means it's an agreement. It's a contract. Well, yeah, but contracts can be broken. Marriages can be broken. People can get divorced. A covenant is what? A covenant is different. And covenant is a commitment for all time, period. You never break it. It always remains. There's a, uh, a book, For Better, For Worse, For God, written by a woman, Mary Jo Peterson. And in it, she tells the story of Scott and Tina. Scott and Tina were college sweethearts. They married right after graduation and had their first child before their first anniversary. Two other children followed. Tina stayed home with the children while Scott moved ahead in his career in the computer industry. But then things changed. Scott lost two jobs and settled for lower paying, less satisfying work. Then his intermittent problem with alcohol became a full-blown crisis. Scott was unemployed for several years. Tina returned to work, had a miscarriage, all the while encouraging Scott to seek help. Eventually, he entered treatment, 
and began recovery that has continued. Life is much better today for Scott and Tina, she writes. They have been through hard times, terrible times, but they told me a beautiful thing. Through their 22 years of marriage, neither doubted the love of the other. They always believed they were loved, even when problems kept them from showing it. They didn't always feel the other's love, but they never lost sight of their promise and the desire to love each other until death. They drew strength and encouragement from each other. They always knew, they always knew that the love of the other was there because they were living a covenant. We can draw strength from Christ even in our moments of deepest, darkest despair, like the one that St. Paul encountered. Because why? Because we know that Christ always loves us because he has made a covenant, the new covenant, which was made with the shedding of his blood. That covenant, which means that if someone will become human and then die the way he did for love of us, that there is nothing, as St. Paul says, that will separate us from the love of Christ. If he did that for us, he will always love us. That love will always be there. And if you know that that love will always be there, man, that's a source of, a source of strength. You know, uh, in my own life, when we started doing pre-Canas, uh, we had been married, I guess, maybe about 13 years. Um, now, yeah, I guess, I think, yeah, I think that was probably about right. Now, my wife and I have been married 35. And like everybody else, we've had our issues. We've had our problems. We've had our bumps in the road. We had uh, a very difficult pregnancy with a first child. We were told by doctors that we would be, um, we would be sympathized with if we chose to abort her. The suggestion was made that that was the right thing to do, that it made perfect sense because of all the problems, the medical problems that she was sure to have, which after two and a half months, um, well, actually after 11 days in the hospital before my wife gave birth, and then for the two and a half months after that, and he stayed in the hospital until she was big enough to come home at four and a half pounds, there were lots of problems, lots of physical issues, but none of what the doctors had predicted ended up coming true. But it was a significant worry, a significant source of stress, a significant affliction at the time. The decision was made, well, we're going to have this child, and if she suffers from some terrible malady, if she suffers from some terrible disability, if she has multiple maladies and disabilities, and if our lives are changed by having to care for a child in that condition, okay, so be it. We were spared that burden. We didn't have to carry that cross. We have good friends who weren't so lucky. Their lives have been changed because they're caring for a child with a significant disability. But we were spared that. But nonetheless, um, it was at the time a source of, of stress. There have been job losses, moves to different cities. Uh, there have been Oh, issues with uh, members in our respective families. Uh, but through it all, um, my wife and I never doubted 
that we uh, cared for each other, that we were there for each other, that we were not going to be split on uh, into different camps uh, by our families, that we were not going to that we were not going to let that get between us, that we weren't going to take side with our family members against the other, that it was always us looking out against the world, that we were, whatever we had to face, we would face together. And that sustained us. And it also, I I think, sustained our children. They knew it. They could see it. They knew that we were united. And so that provided a, a foundation of love in the house, they knew that if, if mom and dad loved each other and stayed together, were going to stay together, nothing was going to break them apart. That was always, there was always going to be a home for them. There was always going to be a home of love for them. My, my older daughter, when she went off to college, didn't want to go. Well, I mean, she didn't, she didn't. And I guess it's like a lot of you know, college students, same kind of thing. They you know, were going to miss home, but they wanted to go to college. Well, that wasn't my experience when I was a kid. I couldn't wait to get out of the house. The house I grew up in was not a good house. It was not a home of love. My father was a severe alcoholic. He was abusive to kids and to his wife, verbally, physically. You know, physical violence. I couldn't wait, you know, to get out of that house. My mother ended up going first, thankfully. Me and my older brother stayed home with Dad. She was worried about us, but we told her, no, 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 we're more worried about you. You get out. You know, so when my daughter, you know, went off to college and, you know, didn't want to go and didn't want us to leave her when when we got in the car to go home, I just couldn't help thinking how much different it was from my own experience. And I was cognizant of the fact that we had built something, we had done something right, that there was a home of love that she was going to miss, but that she was always going to have and it was always going to be there. It's a strength. There's a... It's a source of strength. It's a source of encouragement because it's a covenant, because it's a truth, because it will not change and will not go away. That's what commitment does. Commitment is love. If you say, well, I'm going to get divorced, you know, we're married, we made this promise, but now we're going to break it, was it really ever real love? Was it, was it ever real love? Real love is not just what I can get out of it, what makes me feel good. Real love is giving for the other person. When the other person is down, doing what's necessary to help the other person, it's a commitment. That's what marriage is all about. Now, you know, there are stories, there are lots of stories, much better stories than than mine, about people who make commitments. And there are people who make commitments to God, we talk about marriage as a a sacrament of um, of love. Well, there are people who make commitments um, not to another human person, but to God. They marry themselves to God. Saint Aloysius Gonzaga, for example, uh, was somebody who made a vow of chastity, a promise of commitment to, of total devotion to God. At age seven, at age seven, he felt such a devotion to God that he made that commitment and did not break it. There's another saint. I love drawing on the lives of the saints. There's so much that we can 
learn uh, from the lives of the saints, how they conduct themselves. You know, it's one thing to focus on on Christ, but how much can we relate to Christ? We can try to imitate him. We can try to follow him. We can try to carry our own crosses. But how much can we really relate to him? Often enough, when we look at how other people have done it, it helps. You want to you know, find out how to cook something. Maybe you find a YouTube video that shows you how. Maybe you want to you know, do a, a mechanical repair uh, job on your car. You get a YouTube video and see how somebody else has done it. Watching somebody else do it is so much easier than trying to find out on your own how to do it. You know, trial and error will take you much longer than if somebody's already done it and shown the way and you just follow them. And so the saints can be tremendous examples for us. And um, there's a very powerful story of a saint. Her name is Saint Philomena. She was unknown for like 1,800 years. In 1802, however, people were doing some excavation work in Rome. And they happened to, there was a, I guess somebody was digging with a pick, and it happened to clank of some type of a hard surface. They soon found that it was a concrete sarcophagus or some type of a stone sarcophagus. And uh, as, you know, they were instructed to do, they, uh, you know, being in Rome, knowing that there's a lot of uh, sacred and historical objects buried here and there about Rome, they then all of a sudden became cautious and uh, started, you know, push away some of the dirt, and then they found what, that they were dealing, in fact, with a, um, a burial tomb. And then they quickly noticed some other things, some symbols that told them that this was an early, uh, you know, Christian, early Catholic tomb, an early, the tomb of an early Catholic. And so um, they, uh, they halted the work, and they set the next day for some public display of what they were going to find. And so people gathered. And when they unearthed this uh, burial sarcophagus, they found symbols on the outside. They found an anchor, arrows, and a palm branch, uh, symbols and figures that suggested to them that uh, there was a martyr here. There was a martyr. And the, the symbolism also suggested to them perhaps this was a virgin martyr, a new martyr, a new early Catholic martyr from Roman times discovered in the early 1800s. It was, in fact, a historical find. People got very excited. And when they, then they opened the sarcophagus. And knowing that early Catholics would um, often, with a martyr, take a vial of their blood and bury that vial with the person. They then turned their attention to whether or not there was a vial inside the sarcophagus. And sure enough, there was. The telltale sign that they were dealing with a murder. And then examining the bones that they found in there, they found something rather extraordinary. It was a very young martyr, a girl who had faced death when she was about age 13. 
Think about it. A 13-year-old Catholic martyr deciding to die for the faith. Well, they knew nothing about who this person was. There was a name actually inscribed on the sarcophagus, Philomena. And the story then came out later as to who she was. Nobody knew about her. She wasn't listed anywhere. There was nothing that had previously been written about her. Nobody knew anything about her. But then there was a revelation to a nun. And then hundreds of miles away, there was a revelation at the same time to a priest. And then at the same time, again, a great distance away, there was a revelation to an artisan. And they all received basically the same revelation. And the judgment was made that this was reliable, that there was no explanation as to why people hundreds of miles away from each other at the same time could come up with a story about a saint no one knew nothing about, and their stories all coincided remarkably. And that was one of the reasons why she was canonized and is now known as Saint Philomena. Well, the story of St. Philomena, as was revealed, uh, included this, that this girl was named Lumina, which means light, at the time of her birth. And when she was baptized, her name was changed to Philomena, F-I, for the Latin philia, philia luminous, daughter of light. Why did they do that? Because uh, her father was a prince, of a small state in Greece. And while they were, his, her father and mother were originally pagans, they converted to the Christian faith. And as I say, had the child baptized and then named her Daughter of Light, the Light of Faith. They were naming her after this newfound Catholic faith that they had adopted. Well, a few, some years later, Diocletian was the emperor of Rome and he was threatening war against this small Greek state. The power of the world was going to come crashing down on this small Greek state. Well, her father traveled to Rome to, I guess, pay homage, pay tribute, do whatever was going to be demanded of him. And he was afraid of what the emperor was, in fact, going to demand. And when the father came with his family and Diocletian saw his daughter, Diocletian became enamored with his daughter and said, I'll tell you what, I will spare you all the hardships and oppression that otherwise might come your way, but I want the hand of your daughter. So the father readily agreed. There was only one problem. Philomena had made a vow. She had made a vow of chastity. She had taken Christ as her spouse. She already belonged to him. Her father and mother pleaded with her, unbended knee, to spare them uh, the trouble they were going to encounter, to spare the people that lived in their home country. Because if war came to them, they were all going to be subjected to tremendous suffering. She would not yield. She said she could not. She could not because her promise, her covenant, her commitment to God came before everything before her parents, before her country and the people in her country, before everything. She was just simply going to trust in God. That was all. Well, after that, she suffered terribly. She was tormented. Tormented and tortured and never wavered 
and eventually when various attempts to try to kill her failed, they eventually just stuck a spear through her neck and killed her that way. And so she died. She died because she would not relent. She would not break her vow, her commitment to God. She made a commitment, and she kept it. She competed. She competed well. She finished the race. She kept the faith. And for this commitment, this covenant, what came from it? You would say, well, she died. I mean, there, and she ended her life in obscurity. Nobody knew anything about her for 1,800 years. But then, 1,800 years later, all of a sudden, tremendous miracles started happening in the name of Philomena. After this, the sarcophagus was discovered and uh, her relics were placed in a place of honor. All these tremendous miracles started happening. And phys- I mean, physical cures, physical healings, but then more miracles Conversions of faith, more people turning to God. Those are true miracles, too. St. John Vianney, Curie of ours, the patron saint of all priests, of parish, of, of, of parish priests, he uh, had a special devotion to St. Philomena and credited her with so much. Um, uh, so, you know, the fruits of this covenant that she made, the fact that she kept her covenant, the fruits took a long time to be realized, but they came in splendid and spectacular ways. And when we are tempted to break a commitment, to break a marriage, it may be that we think, well, we're ending, ending trouble. If we stay together, there'll be more trouble, and this is better this way. But usually the easy way out is never the, the best way out. If, for example, you want to divorce somebody, St. Paul writes about this too. If you want to divorce somebody because they don't share your faith, well, then you're losing the opportunity to help them find Christ. You're losing an opportunity to save a soul. Now, there are times when people need to, turn, to end a marriage my mother was one of them. Uh, she um, she suffered for many, many years. And uh, eventually, with the advice and consultation of some nuns and some priests and so forth, she did leave the house for her own safety and the safety of her two younger children. She was forced to. She didn't have really any choice. So sometimes there are dramatic, dire situations. Um but all too often, when people are getting divorced after five months because all of a sudden they're in quarantine for three weeks and they decide this is too much, this is too much, do we really have any strength to draw on or is the tank empty? And if the tank is empty, is it because we don't have Christ? We, If St. Paul were here today, if he were alive today, The message he would want to tell us more than any other is, do not be afraid. Draw on that source of strength that's there for all of us in times of affliction. It is Christ. It is the love of God. There is an unquenchable love that God has for each, each one of us. And it's always going to be there because he made a covenant with us. And we can draw on that strength. We can draw encouragement. 
and then we can encourage others. And that's perhaps what we need to hear in America today. We hope this has been interesting, perhaps provocative. We hope you've enjoyed it. We hope you'll join us again. Until then, uh, this has been your host, Ray Gerard, and until then, may God's best blessings be with all of you. Hello, God's beloved. I'm Annabelle Mosley, author, professor of theology, and host of Then Sings My Soul and Destination Sainthood on WCAT Radio. I invite you to listen in and find inspiration along this sacred journey we're traveling together to make our lives a masterpiece and, with God's grace, become saints. Join me, Annabelle Mosley, for Then Sings My Soul and Destination Sainthood on WCAT Radio. God bless you. Remember, you're never alone. God is always with you. To a production of WCAT Radio, please join us in our mission of evangelization. And don't forget, love lifts up where knowledge takes place.